Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. I look out my office, this is a couple months ago actually, it's been that long, uh, and I see Nick carrying one of those little measuring things, and he's walking around the campus with it. That 1,297 feet is exactly... How the distance uh, that you have to go. So we're entering an eight-week campaign uh, called Legacy. If you can't tell that, you need to see a doctor, all right? Uh, we're going to build a 23,000-square-foot children's wing right out here. Three years from now, we do not want uh, parents having to walk their kids to five different locations on this property and doing a quarter-mile sprint in order to get into the service on time. Uh, We don't want our children's ministry to, between the services or during the services, have to walk kids from, you know, to a different portable after they get to the second part of their uh, curriculum and and their training, because that's something that has to be done uh, at this point. So it's, it's not the most effective way to train our kids, and we don't want families to have to do it three years from now. So Legacy is an investment in our future generations. Our mission is to help people discover who Jesus really is and to become just like him. So we're trying to reach people for Christ, and we're not even close to reaching the full potential that we have in this spot uh, right here. So um, there are many factors at play in this campaign that you will have to discover over time that I'll try to make clear. There's a certain need, uh, there's timing, and there's strategy, all of those factors which I will get into. But here's the bottom line for the moment, just for the moment. We have a very clear picture of what the future needs, uh, where we need to be next uh, at Hillside. And it's been planned for over 18 months. Uh, So this is not a whim. Now it's just time to go. Now it's time to move. So uh, if you've been coming to Hillside for a while, you've known this is on the horizon. Now I've especially found the book of Joshua to be incredibly motivating during this time, and surprisingly applicable. Um, Joshua had a very clear mission. He had God's promises that surrounded that mission, and a very clear picture of a preferred future that God wanted him to lead those people into. Now, a few months ago, I was reading uh, a pastor who said this about the future. It's coming whether you like it or not. You can fight it, or you can fight for it. And then they made this comment. Most churches walk backwards into the future. And that really grabbed me. And and I understand why, and he explains, you know, you walk backwards into the future because there's something here that just means too much to you, that you just want to hold on to. You don't want to let go of, so you're trying to preserve the past a little bit. And then when you turn around, it's just scary. It's just scary to look forward. The the present is always safer. You can always choose the more cautious route. and That's essentially what Israel did. By the time you get to Joshua, the new nation of Israel now, uh, 40 years earlier, had been in the same exact spot Joshua had them. The same exact spot. And they literally spent 40 days spying out the land. 40 days. And for every day that they spied out the land and didn't trust God, he made them walk around in a wilderness for a year. 
For every day they spied the land and didn't believe, he made them walk for a year. So for 40 years they walked. You could say backwards. Because they, they basically walked in circles. And uh, so that's all they did. Sort of walked directionless for 40 years. And you know what else they did? Was attend funerals. At least two million people died in that wilderness, and God told them, literally, in, a, in as tart a voice as you can in numbers. God's tart in numbers, because he's fed up. He literally says, your carcasses will end up right here in this wilderness, because you didn't trust me. And so they attended funerals. And I calculated, if there was two million, somewhere between two and three million people, if there were two million people, there was 135 funerals a day. Now imagine doing the eulogies for those guys. Here lies Fred. Fred was afraid of giants. He had gigaphobia. That's what it's called, by the way. It's gigaphobia. If you're afraid of giants. Fred never took down a city. He never crossed the Jordan. You know, he never got the land that he was supposed to. He left no legacy for his kids. I mean, this would have been a miserable every single day. 135 people dying. I did a, uh, watched a video over the Christmas break of 100-year-olds reflecting on their life. They lived a century. Some of them were 103, some were 106, and there was just sort of this video montage just letting them reflect on life. And one of the questions was what you regret, and they, to a person, regretted nothing that they did. The regrets all came in the category of what they never did, what they never tried, what they never shot for. And it was, it was sort of impacting. Now, with any mission or vision, like the one we're looking at before us as a body, there, there are times when you've got you to gotta sacrifice more than other times. Um, there are just moments that cost more than other moments. You know, uh, <laughs> I was reflecting on on the life of Hillside, because we're about 23 years old. In February, we'll be 23 years old. And, uh, and in 2000, we started this church in 95. In 2000, five years, roughly five years into it, it was time. We had to make a move. We had to do something. We were all worn out. Our congregation grew for a while, and then it just sort of plateaued. We met in schools. It was uh, a tough struggle. We couldn't Keller didn't have much here when, when that started, so there was hard to get a sort of a, uh, a presence in the community. And we were either going to have to find a piece of land and build on it, or we're going to have to shut this down because we were all exhausted and couldn't get any traction. And so you look at a congregation of about 200, and you say, the banks, we found a piece of land. The bank said we can have it. We got to come up with $200,000 in six weeks. And I remember I was exhausted. I didn't know if it would fly. I didn't know if we could accomplish that anyway. In less than six weeks, we had $220,000. And many of the people that were in that room are in here now. And that was the first time I had to look at the congregation with and say, we, we got a Jordan to cross. And then we got into that building in 2000. Two, actually, but when we got to 2006, we had been in that building four years. We were growing 20 to 25% a year. We got to where we were doing five services over there. It was a great thing, but we were exhausted, and we didn't have the space. 
And so all you could look forward to is maybe 10 services. That's all you could do. And so it was like, what do we want to do? Do we want to do 10 services or do we, you know, start them on Thursday? And then, you know, what do you want to do? So it was like, hey, we got to do it again. And man, this was a real call. Man, in 2006, at the end of 2006, it was like this building was on the horizon. It was the biggest thing we could ever imagine have, having to do. It was, and it was still, to date, it'll be the biggest thing we ever do is this campaign right here. Nothing will be bigger than the one we did in 2006 to get into this building right here. But I mean, all of us would say it, the struggle and the, and the three-year campaign that we committed to and then the 2008, you know, fallout and all of the issues that we had, none of us regret having done that because of what we have now and where God has brought us. But it was, it was a time to ask and it was amazing what God was able to do through us. And here it is 12 years later. It's not like you do this every day. You don't cross Jordans every day. There's not a giant to take down every day, but every blue moon in the mission and vision and the movement that you're in, you're going to have to have times when you call everybody to, to do something a little extra. And we're in one of those seasons. 12 years later, we're asking again. Uh, and... Um, I remember, I mean, you don't, you don't know this when you first do it, but once you put a shovel in the ground, and that was the first time on this property, that's Tim on, in the white shirt and Jeff on the, the, I'm the only one that showed up to work, I think, that day, if you look at the outfits. <laughs> uh, anyway, the three of us are standing there, and we're, and, and we're as giddy as we can be because we're finally going to have a piece of property, but we didn't realize, not, not for a second, that when you put that shovel in the ground, you're going to have to do it again another time, and you might have to do it again another time, and you just keep going as long as the mission and the vision are driving you. Uh, that's, that's where we are now. It's just it's time to move. And when you get to Joshua, that's what time it is in Israel's history. And one of my favorite... Uh, verses, one of my favorite pictures that comes out of Joshua chapter 1 and chapter 3, which we're skipping chapter 2 for a minute because uh, we'll get back to it, but 1 and 3 are the key. You get the first, hey, this is what you got to do, and then chapter 3, they actually do it. They have to cross the Jordan in chapter 3. We'll look at that closer next week. But here's what God says to them in chapter, and I got to tell you, Joshua has become the book for me for the year. It's dictating my entire year, and I want it to do that for you. And here's what God says to them. Every place that the sole of your feet will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. I've given you the land, but you need to put your feet on it. You've got to step out and in. That's the idea. You've got to use your feet. I'm not going to hand it to you. You've got to walk. You've got to move. You've got to show up. Get there is what God says. So what God has for his people usually requires us to go and to move. It has to be stepped into. And like anything else spiritually, and this is a great spiritual principle for you for the year, some of you, you, you might, you know, we all do it at times, but you're just waiting for God to do something big or great in your life. Change your character, change your, your mission, change anything for you. But you've got to realize you've got to step into it. You don't drift there. You don't just meander across the Jordan. God says you better get your feet across that river and take the land that I've given to you. If your feet end up there, uh, where they're supposed to be, it's because you saw a vision and you, and you moved toward it. It won't be 
by accident. So it takes vision, and that's what he's saying here. You've got to see. I want you to see the land, and I want you to go stand in it. I want you to go step on it. Um, <clears throat> one of my favorite John, uh, Dallas Willardisms is uh, he says we're very fond of saying, without me, you can do nothing. Without God, we can do nothing. But he, he hastens to add, if you do nothing, it'll be without me. That's God saying, you want to walk around for 40 years in the wilderness? I'll let you. If you want to cross the Jordan and get where I have you going, I'll go with you and I'll do great things for you. But don't stand around here waiting for me to hand it to you in your lap. You've got to move. It's about feet. Feet. That means you've got to act. You can't march backwards into the river. You've got to face it and you've got to go. And then you get to chapter 3, and this is great when they actually do cross in chapter 3. Chapter 2 is an interlude, and we'll explain that later. But for now, in chapter 3, Joshua says to them, Command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, stand still in the Jordan, get in the water. And then in verse 13, he repeats the same theme that was mentioned in chapter 1. When the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the Ark, the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. This is what God is saying. If you'll stand in the river, I'll stand the waters up. But I'm not standing them up until you're in the water. And this would have been, in verse 15, chapter 3, tells you that this is flood season. It's the worst time to try to cross. I mean, the river's literally daring you to cross it. The waters are higher, much stronger from the, uh, from the spring rains and the snows of Hermon. I mean, this is not a good time to cross. You waited 40 years. Anybody in that camp, somebody smart would have said, hey, look, we waited 40 years. Could we wait two more months? And here's the thing about crossings and about, you know, moving when God tells you to move. He usually doesn't pick the best time. That's not like him. He's going to pick the worst time, the worst season. He wants to make sure that when you put your feet in that water, you know it's about him and it wasn't about you. That's just how it is. There's always obstacles. There's always issues. There's always potential excuses. you got to get your feet wet. If you don't get your feet wet, I'm not standing the waters up. That's what he said. And I'm asking you to step into this campaign. Step into the campaign. In the Old Testament, what it means to set foot, whenever you see that in the Old Testament, you see it in Deuteronomy, you see it in a few other places, it was, it was a conquering image. Whenever you put your foot there in that time where, you know, where land was everything, when you put your foot there, those were fighting moves. That was a fighting move. It was, I'm here to conquer. I have a vision. I have a purpose. There's something I'm going to do when I get here. I've got mission-driven. It was all about moving the feet. Now, we are right now in an incredible time reaching very uh, young families through some different ministries here in our church. And it's the best time for us to be doing it because now we're a few years into our discipleship process. When a person comes to Hillside and decides they want to grow, if you decide you want to instead of just attend a church, if you decide you want to grow, we know how to walk you through the process now. We have one, a very specific process to connect you to people, to help you learn how to follow Christ. And not just name him, but follow him. We have a process for that that we've, you know, rung through the, you know, the mill here for about 
for a little over two years, worked out some of the kinks. Our children's ministry, same thing. At the same time, we decided to write our own curriculum so that every kid was getting the same thing. We knew what every kid was going to get. It's very difficult to do that. It's very taxing on a children's ministry team. But we're very intentional about how we teach our kids. The way we do it and what we teach them. And so for that purpose, there's never been a better time for young families to come to Hillside. We're more prepared to walk you through the milestones of raising your children than we ever have been in the history of this church. Now with that said, we also have resources we haven't had. We've never in the, life of the, in the life of this church, 23 years, had the resources we have now. Had the giving, the generosity of a congregation, never had it like we have now. And the resources. We also have, an, I think, the perfect strategy. What we're going to build there. The plan to build it. The way we want to do it. It's been teased out number of drafts. We know exactly what everything is going to do and what it's going to do every day of the week, not just on the weekend. So we have, I think, the right plan and strategy. We want to do it debt-free. That's a better strategy. We don't want to have to take on debt to do it. Uh, We're excited about that. It's not how we did this building. It's how we're going to do the next one. Um. So the goal is on March 3rd and 4th, we'll promise together what we can give. That's what this is, a three-year campaign. Now, up to now, we've been doing an annual campaign. Every January, we all sort of promise together what we're going to give to the building, and that's how we pay the mortgage for this every year. That's going away March 25th. So if you've been giving to the building and you say, well, what are we going to do now? You know, it's January. That doesn't happen until March. You just keep giving to the building. I'm going to keep giving to the building through March, just like it was a normal year and and what I do regularly. But when March 25th gets here, whatever we were doing goes away. Now we're in a three-year campaign. And that three-year campaign is going to accomplish a couple of things. Uh, It's going to be, it's roughly, it's a little under three years. It's a thousand days. And on March 25th, March 4th, we'll promise. March 25th will be our first fruits. It's the first gifts we'll actually give to this new campaign. And if we're going to do it, and if we're going to raise, the goal is $5 million. If you add that to what we already have in the bank, then we are able to pay the mortgage for three years out of that. We're able to pay down principal of roughly 10%, 500, 550K. And we're then we're going to be uh, able to build the building debt-free. That's the way it will work and what we can do if we do it that way. Um, so on March 25th, if we're going to do it this way, if we're going to do it this way, then we have to do it faster. In other words, you got to get the money in faster because you don't want it to go so long that we stop caring about the, the whole thing and you lose energy. And we also don't want the prices to go up so high since we're waiting till we can afford it. So the longer you wait, the bigger. So on March 25th, we want to take up the biggest offering we've ever had at Hillside. Literally, that's what we have to do. I'm going to I'm going to promise a certain amount of money for the three years. I'm going to try to give as much of it as I can on March 25th. Because the faster we have it, the sooner we can start the process. If we're going to do it this way, and leaders are pretty committed to doing it this way, we think it's a better way. Now, I want to say something. If you're new to Hillside, you just walked in the door today, and I met a few couple. I met a few 
people, you know, right after the service, you know, and it was great to meet them. And they said, hey, we really liked, you know, we really, we really liked it. They weren't offended by anything at all. But I want to say if you're new, stay with us in the process. If God doesn't call you into it, that's fine. You know, he may be calling you here, but you're not ready because you're new and you don't know us. And, you, you, know, you know, we've been doing this for 23 years. This is not the first day. It's your first day. It is not our first day. 23 years. So we have a place to go, and we're trying to get there. We want you to come with us, even though you're not really ready to buy in yet. Hang in there and do it when God tells you to. Uh, and if you're hurting, and I'll say this to you, there's a few of us in here. There's a percentage of Hillside who are hurting. And you're here and you're saying, I love this church and I, I, I've been a part of it and I want to be a part of its future. But right now, I mean, our family's hurting. Maybe you're jobless. Or maybe you're going through something just very unique to your family. And you cannot do it. Well, here's what I'm going to say to you. We'll carry you. Don't bail. We'll carry you. I've already been told by God, this is something I have been told by God, Pete, you will not only give to this campaign out of what you, can, what, what you have, you will give for others too. I've already been told that. Because I know firsthand there are people who are hurting and can't be a part of it even if they want to. I'm going to help them. So if you're hurting and you feel bad, don't feel bad. Just hang tough. We'll carry you. Um, so, Hillside, um, what I'm saying is we just can't let the future just run us over. There's too much at stake, uh, and we're way too far in, and the only thing stopping us is, is fear. That's the only thing, if you're, just, if you're scared. And, you know, and God knows that whenever he calls his people to special things, especially in this moment here, he knows. And fear, by the way, in chapter 1, fear is lurking in the background of every major paragraph. That's why when you get to chapter 1, and I'll show you the whole chapter here, um, and this isn't designed for you to read, you know that, just everyone now and then, I want you to see the whole chapter. Okay, and when you just look at the whole chapter, all I've done is highlight in yellow the key. And, you, and you, you can't read the chapter without seeing. Be strong and courageous. Only be strong and very courageous. Be strong and courageous. God says it the first three times. I mean, here's the beauty of chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. God's talking. Everything in there is what he wants done. It's like, better listen. And he says, be courageous. Don't be afraid. And then down at the end, the people say, we need to be strong and courageous. So, I mean, by the time you get to the end, you go, all right, it's time to do that. That's what you got to be. You're going to have to be courageous in these times. Now, um, I, I did a couple of little bit of introspection on myself and this, and I asked myself, if I would ask you, do you have faith? You might say, you know, you come in here on a Sunday morning, I said, do you have faith? And you might go, I got, I, I, I'd say I probably have a little. You might say, I, I got a little. But what if I asked you if you have courage? How would you answer that question? That one was a little bit more complicated for me. Do I have courage? Spiritual courage. Am I willing to do... I mean, when was the last time you did something for God that was scary? Scared you? Then I just asked this question. Do you think it ought to... Should it take courage to follow Christ? 
or, could we, or can, we just, can, can we imagine that we can follow him until we die and we won't ever need courage? There won't ever be a major river to cross. An incredible ask on the part of God. Like, there's just no way. You're not going to follow Christ and, and, and not need courage. And if you can do that, if you can follow him and never need courage, then you might not be following the Jesus of the New Testament. Because he's crazy. I'm going to tell you. He's crazy. So, what does it take? What does it take to have courage? I found a couple of things in chapter 1 that have benefited me. I want them to, I want them to color my whole year. And I hope that they'll do the same for you. What does it take to have spiritual courage? The kind of courage where you and God are kind of walking together and you know he's nuts. But you know he's nuts and you know you can't hang with him too long without something nutty coming around the corner. And you want to be ready to do it when he says do it. That kind of courage. Well, there's at least three things in here. And the first thing came in Joshua chapter 1 right here where, Mo- where God says this to Joshua. Moses, my servant's dead. And I love the, just the simplicity of that. He's dead. There's still, there's still a mission to accomplish. I hope you're alive and ready. Now, therefore, he says, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people into the land that I'm giving them. Giving to the people of Israel. And I, I just love this no-nonsense God t- saying it's just time to move. This is a promise that was made. You've got to connect this. Don't miss this, or you'll miss the whole theology of Joshua. Don't miss that this was a promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12. Gen- Abraham had his own sacrifices to make. Get out of here. Go to a different land. I'll lead you to it. Abraham, you pay that price. Then you sacrifice your son. You'd be willing to do that. This was connected to that promise, and here it is, the day they're about to do it. And that promise, if you'll read Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, you'll see that promise was for the whole world. Abraham, I will bless your seed, and through that seed I'll bless the entire world. It was a mission. Here's just one part of the mission, and Canaan represented salvation. It represented entering the life God had for us. It wasn't an easy life. There was battles to be fought. It was going to be a tough thing. It wasn't just, let's sit around and barbecue. I mean, it was, we got a, it's not an easy life. And that's what it represented, and that's what Christ is calling. And what does Christ do? What does Jesus do? Same thing in Matthew 9. Don't you hear it? Go, make disciples. That's what you've got to do. Train them, baptize them. Teach them to follow me. Teach them to obey everything I've told them. Go to the end of the age. I'll be with you wherever you go, everywhere. Your footsteps. You step and I'll step. Same, same thing. And you know what's beautiful? <laughs> when you get to Hebrews, when you get to Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, where, where this whole day, the whole, the whole deal of Israel not crossing over into the Jordan when they should have comes up in Hebrews 3 and 4. And in that text, it's beautiful. Look what, look what the writer of Hebrews says. Joshua, you know, led them into rest, but it wasn't the end. It wasn't the end of the story. Hey, get across the river and it's over. No, the, the mission was just beginning. If Joshua had given them rest and that's all they were going to get, he would not have spoken of another day after that. He quotes Psalm 95 to say that wasn't the end of the rest. That wasn't the end of the journey. That was just part of the journey. That was just one river to cross. 
There remains a Sabbath rest. There remains a, a, another kind of rest for the people of God. What kind of rest is that? For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. That rest was a spiritual rest. It was a rest accomplished in Christ. You rest from your works. You don't have to earn salvation. Christ does it for you. That's what Hebrews 3 and 4 is about. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. Get in there. It might as well be saying, cross the Jordan. Find me. And so, not only are people able to find that rest today, but the church still has the mission of helping people find that rest. It's not even close to over. Otherwise, there'd be nothing after Joshua. Once they crossed over, it would have been over. But it's not. And all I'm asking you is this. Maybe God's mission hasn't been on your radar. You say, how do you get courage? One of them is to be committed to a mission. It's very possible that your courage has waned spiritually because you really don't live on the edge of a mission with your life. You don't go to work with the mindset of, I've got to impact people for Christ. You don't pull into your neighborhood with a mindset that you, got to, you, got to, you might have the opportunity to impact people for Christ. Everything we do has got to be mission-minded. How long has it been since you've had, and I was very convicted of this by myself, so I mean I forced myself over the holidays to have one. When was the last time you had a, a conversation, a spiritual conversation, strategic spiritual conversation with someone that might lead to sharing the gospel? When was the last time it was even on your radar? You know why you lose courage? Because you lost complete sight of the mission. God is saying, arise, get up, and go. Get up and go. So I'm going to tell you, I'm going to challenge you. This year, I'm going to have more courage. I am going to get around to more spiritual conversations with people that don't know Christ this year. So here's the, that's the first one. You've got to have the mission in mind. If it's not on your radar, you won't. Second thing is, comes in Joshua chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. This is God talking here where he says uh, to Joshua, Joshua, this book of the law, the one Moses wrote, it's primarily Deuteronomy, shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night. Be careful to do according to all that was written. For then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success. And then he writes this, and I loved verse 9. Verse 9 is amazing. Have I not commanded you? Did I not say it? And it's God saying, I want you to keep my word at the top of your thing. And then he says, aren't I the one that speaks it? Isn't it mine? Doesn't that give some weight to it? And then right after that, he says, be strong and courageous. Don't be a scaredy cat. Don't be confused. Wherever you go, I'll go. Don't be a scaredy cat, and don't walk around confused. And what this verse really had impacted me was, the scriptures have got to be what I take in. They've got to be my nourishment and my life. They've, they've got to take over my character and my values. It's got to be the dominant voice in my head. Because there are lots of other voices. You've got culture screaming at you to be certain things and act a certain way. You've got a, a whole, a whole an environment, a political environment. You've got, you got fear mongers. You've got so many things screaming into your head. Maybe the loudest voice isn't God's and it's warped you a little. But what if you took off into this and you said, God's going to be the most important voice in my life this year? God's voice. Uh, it's going to dictate my reality. Dallas Willard, another Willardism in Joshua, about Joshua 1.8, he says this, I often tell people I can give them one verse that is worth more than a college education. 
And it's Joshua 1.8. To where literally your thoughts are so consumed with what God wants you to do that your mouth can't help but speak it. It speaks reality to you. That's the point. It becomes a sort of the, the world I live in. If you ever uh, read Narnia and you get to the voyage of the Darn Treader, C.S. Lewis has created this incredible spiritual world, this Narnia, where Aslan, God, is in it. And, you know, the two kids, Edmund and Lucy, are, you know, they have to go through the, through the wardrobe in order to get there. Well, they're in their, they're out of it now, and they're in their sort of their, their everyday life. And they're in a room, and in this particular scene, it's an incredible, fantastic scene that they're in a room, and they got their cousin in there with them. You know, it's uh, uh, Edmund Scrub. It's a great name, Scrub. Because he's a snot face, is what he is. He looks at Lucy and Edmund, and he's chiding them for the, yeah, there's no Narnia. I don't know what you're talking about. That's a fake world. I don't know what you're talking about. Now, on the wall is a picture. It's a picture of a ship on, a, on the ocean. And all of a sudden, the water starts coming out of the picture. It comes alive. Literally starts to fill the room. And now, instead of going through the wardrobe to get uh, into Narnia, they go right through the picture frame, this new frame. I was meditating on that. And I just, I just thought to myself, that's what I want. The Word of God can be that kind of thing. It's just a painting in your room. It just lays around. It sits around. It's a thing you look at and you marvel at. But the waters don't flood you. It doesn't fill the room. It's not your reality. You don't live in it, drink it, uh, you know, deal with the cold of it and all of the stuff that comes with living in that reality because the Word of God isn't that prominent in your life. It just sort of hangs You've got to fixate. You want to get courage, you've got to fixate yourself on God's Word. You've got to hear it the loudest. It's got to be the strongest tone in your life. You've got to find a way to make that happen. And if you don't, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. You're going to go nuts in this world with all the voices. And I'll tell you what you'll have to do a little bit. You'll have to drown out some other ones. Some of us have voices coming into our heads from so many different resources and sources that God's word just gets crowded out. And you're not, you're, not, you're, not, you're not living the reality he's called you to. And there's a big one to be living. And I just want that feeling of that, the water filling in my life where his reality is more important to me than any other reality. And you'll get courage doing that. And then the third thing that happens in this book, and it's so powerful, it's the last half of the chapter. The whole last half of the chapter is spent on one theme. And one of the things I forgot about when I got to Joshua chapter 1, and I found very interesting, was there was two and a half tribes who already had their land. So you got 12 tribes. They've all been promised land. By the time Moses dies, two and a half of the tribes had already gotten theirs. Uh, notice what he says. Uh, he, Joshua says to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh, so two, tri two and a half tribes. Remember the word that Moses, servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest. We'll give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan, but all the men of valor among you, listen to what he says, shall pass over armed, ready for battle, before your brothers, and shall help them. This is an incredible call to unity, to come together. And until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you, and they take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. In other words, you're not getting to, to, to enjoy the, your land until everybody does. 
Now, this is not Joshua saying, size matters. This is not Joshua saying, we need the two and a half tribes who already have their land to join in the fight, or we won't be able to take them down. No. They were already way, way short of what it would take, if size is what mattered. What mattered to Joshua was solidarity. We all do it together. We're going together. Unity. No one's getting anything till everyone has it. Now, the moment I read that, the first words that came to my mind, here's the first sentence that I wrote down when Kirk Nowry, who's uh, my friend and uh, a mentor in my life, started to help us with this campaign six months ago. First sentence I wrote down was his first sentence to me, the only thing that'll destroy this campaign is disunity, is a lack of unity. You've got to get everyone together. And that started, you know, 18 months ago, getting staff, leaders, elders, all of us together in the same mindset. You, you got to be there. Now you got to extend that to all of us. Now, um, here's why that's important. And, and by the way, he doesn't say to them, uh, listen, you've already got your land, so if you would, if you'll just hang in the back, make sure, you know, there's no scragglers and, you know, stay out of harm's way. That's not what he says. He goes, you're going to be the tip of the spear. You're going across first. And I thought to myself, yeah, you know, there's lots of reasons. You know, there's lots of people in this room who will exclude themselves from this. They'll say, well, my kids have already gone through. Uh, sorry. I've already done it. Good luck. And there's a group of people in here might feel that exact way. My kids aren't going to benefit. I understand that some of us are going to benefit from this indirectly. My kids have already gone through it. Now, my kids are probably going to have kids. I assume they're going to have kids. I don't know if they'll have kids. I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> be honest. I'm sort of s- scoping over the situation. Uh, the Chiafalo ends here. This is where it ends, people. Uh, so... But, you know, but I'm probably going to have grandkids, and that'll be a part of that. And there are some of you who says, you know, I, here's my situation. I have young kids. I don't have a whole lot of money. Well, I remember being there in 2000 and 2006. I was in both of those conditions. And, uh, and I'm saying, you know, you, no, you've got to jump in here. You can't leave it to the ones who already had their kids through. And then there are some of you, and I know there's a whole group of you in here that would say, I don't even like kids. I'm not even a kid person. I don't like kids. So I'm I'm excluding myself. Here's what I'm saying to you. If you'll just do this, please do it. Don't exclude yourself from this campaign. Join it. Step in the water. Together, we can do this far, far easier So much easier if we just all decide, God, what do you want? If you'll just say, God, what do you want me to do for this campaign? I love this church. It's a part of my life. It's built into my life. It will build into my life. Help me see what the future looks like and what that means, what I can do. That's what I'm asking you to, and I'm going to tell you. You know, my family goes to, uh, we're very fortunate to have an aunt who has a place in the panhandle of Florida, and every summer gives us a couple of weeks to stay. It's a blessing. And so this past July, uh, there was something that happened on the beach. It wasn't to us. We didn't see it, but, I mean, it happened in Panama City, Panama City Beach, Florida. Um, There's two boys, two young boys, which I could relate to because so many scary moments I've had on the beach as they've grown up. 
were uh, dragged out 100, 100 yards from the shore, and they were caught in a riptide, and they started screaming. And, of course, the family members, you know, the first ones to jump up, and I'm talking everybody, old, the, old, the, the grandma, everybody's jumping up, and they're all swimming out to the, to, it's about 15 feet of water. <clears throat> and they all get out there, and pretty soon nine of the family members are out there. There's nine of them stuck in the riptide, and they can't get out. We don't know it from the shore, but eventually you realize grandma has a heart attack in the riptide. So you've got people screaming, you've got kids close to going under, you've got grandma who's having a heart attack, and they, and they have no way to get them out. And so this is a beautiful scene, but I want you to see it. It was so powerful to me. Uh, there's the nine of them right there in that riptide, and they can't get out of it, holding on to each other in 15 feet of water. And then you have uh, so what happens is, is they just decide to form a human chain. They just start screaming, and every long, everybody along the beach just starts making a human chain. Everybody grabs hands. It started out with five, and then 15, and then pretty soon 80 people standing across, and they literally pulled every single one of them out of that riptide. It was a powerful, powerful picture, and I thought, that's unity at its absolute best. These people didn't even know each other. I don't have kids. You have kids. I don't care. Uh, you know. I'm on vacation, you live here. I mean, who cares? Nobody cared. It was what mattered that, that rallied them. That is what can happen with our mission if we'll all buy into it. If we'll all buy into it. And I just want you to just see, I don't want you to see buildings and dollars. Don't see that. If that's all we're going to see, then I'm not, I'm not going to give to it. I see families That's what I want you to see. Families that aren't here yet. Listen, Hillside wouldn't be where it is today if every, in 2000, 2006, and now, we can't look to the future, the families that aren't here yet. You've got to be able to do that. That's why you've got to be on mission. You won't have courage if you have no mission. You won't be courageous if God's word isn't the loudest voice in your head. If you let everything scare you, because his voice isn't the loudest voice in your head, then no, we're never going to accomplish it. It never happens. It never has, whether Old Testament or New. It won't work. So you just, you got to do it. So we're at one of those crossings, and it's going to hurt a little bit. I know it is. It's going to hurt for a thousand days. I can tell you right now, the last campaign was three years. It almost killed me, but I survived to tell. I survived to tell the story, and there's a number of survivors in here, and I can tell you at the end of the thousand days, and you didn't get to do X, Y, or Z, you'll be glad you did it. And I'll tell you something else that's really beautiful uh, about chapter 3 that I love, and here's my, here's my verse that had convicted me to the end. It was chapter 3, and Joshua says to them the day before they, you know, gathers them all before they cross, he says, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. This is the ESV, and I think it says literally amazing things, and it says it a couple of times. And here's the deal. These people, this is the new generation, you know, the only ones that didn't survive in the wilderness were the 20, I mean, the only ones that are here now were 20 years or younger. These people have no military skill or experience. They're about to take on the, the, the greatest military campaign that they've ever taken on in Israel's history. And they have no technology, they have no skill, no experience. They're scared to death. And God doesn't say, okay, everybody get out in the backyard, we're going to start stretching, we're going to start throwing arrows, we're going to get, you know, 
Get that shoulder working and do that. He says, I know, and he doesn't say, yeah, the enemy's big over there. Tomorrow when we cross, you're going to see what I've been telling you. They're big. It's not what he says. Here's what he says. Consecrate yourselves because I'm going to do great things. I'm going to show up, and you need to be ready when I do. Isn't that amazing? Wouldn't you like to go through 2018 and say, God, when you show up, I'll be there and I'll be ready. How would you like to be able to say that? If that doesn't motivate you, Hillside, you need more coffee. Go get it right now. Just go get it. I want to be ready. If God says we're going to do this and you need to be ready, you need to set yourself apart. That's what consecrate means. Set yourself apart. Get your mind and heart right because when I show up, you need to be ready for that. Don't worry about the obstacles on the other side. Worry about me. I love Step out there. Put yourself out there. Step up and show up, and I'll show up. So, let's step into the future. Let's step forward. And I'll just close with this. There was a, uh, Australia has this coat of arms. And uh, it looks like this. They got a kangaroo and an emu. And, you know, you just think, oh, Australians, they're just crazy. I mean, you got a kangaroo and an emu. But they, can, they fancy themselves as, a, you know, a, a, an advancing sort of forward-looking nation or country, right? That's what they see themselves as. And these two animals in the coat of arms, you know why they have them there? It's because these two animals move backwards very unnaturally. They don't move backwards well. The only time they'll move backwards is strategically in a fight. Otherwise, they're not walking backwards. They're built and designed to move forward. That's exactly what God is doing with Israel and what I think he's doing for us at Hillsborough. But I thought it was a great picture. It's a great picture. We need to march into the future. Can't be backpedaling now. Can't walk backwards into the future. And I believe when, this, when we look back at this campaign at the end of three years and we look at the Legacy Project together and its future impact on people, on what we do here, on our mission, uh, that we did the right thing. I'm telling you, in the next five to ten years will be the most fruitful years Hillside's had. Thanks to Walmart, and you gotta love Walmart. <laughs> They're gonna widen this road. For, it's gonna be four lane. It's gonna be busy. People are gonna be coming by here. It's it's time for us to be ready for them. We're ready for them in every way, in, intrinsically. We need, we need to be ready for them facility-wise as well in order to pull that off. So, I want you to bow your heads. <clears throat> Father, thank you for launching this church. Thank you for, for everyone you have here. Everyone's ears that you allowed to, to hear and eyes to see. I pray, Father, that you won't let us be afraid of the future. We won't walk backwards into it. Not even this year, not any day of our lives do we need to be afraid, but to live courageously because you've called us to a mission and there's just no time for fear because your word is, is so prominent in our lives. It's just the reality we've chosen to live and to be called together, to do it together, to reach people together. Father, Lead this church in this thousand days. Help us to accomplish this. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Hey, thanks for watching today's message. We hope it encourages you wherever you're at in your faith. If you enjoyed it, let your friends know. We'll catch you next time.